Hallelujah indeed. Amen. I praise God for a worship team that's not here to entertain, that leads us in worship, who chooses lyrics that express and teach us theology and allow us to praise God. So worship team, thank you for what you do. Turn with me to John chapter 11 as we make our way through the book. My prayer tonight is, I know this will be a familiar passage to many of you, uh, the raising of Lazarus. But my hope is that we see it anew tonight, that you will let God touch your heart and your mind, and that you will just leave tonight in awe and praising him for who he is and what he's done for us. So how many of you have hiked or climbed to the top of a mountain? Several of you. I know, in Texas. There are mountains in Texas. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I've gone up in, and it's not really a mountain, but Enchanted Rock several times, right? That pink dome in the state park. It's a 0.8-mile hike up to the top at a greater than a 30-degree angle at most of it. And typically, it takes the average person about 45 minutes to go up. Um, several years ago, I could do it a little faster than I can now. But, but it takes about 45 minutes to, get, to, to traverse that. And it's, it's equivalent, the height range, to, to going up to 45-story building on stairs. That's why it takes so long, right? But when you get to the top, right, you're excited. One, because you, you've made it, right? All that energy you've expended, you've accomplished something. But also, you get the spectacular view of, of all the state park. Beautiful scenery, especially if you get up there at sunrise or sunset. Just absolutely breathtaking. We see the same thing here in John chapter 11 because this is the pinnacle passage for John. He's been taking us from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11, building up to this, a crescendo, if you will. Chapters 1 through 11 talk about Jesus' first three years of ministry. Starting in chapter 12 next week, the f- chapters 12 through 19, those eight chapters, are going to be about his last week, his Passion Week. And then chapters 20 and 21 will wrap up about his resurrection and some last words of John. But we've been building up to this, this chapter, and we've been seeing Jesus do many miracles, healing the lame, healing the deaf and the blind, walking in water, multiplying food, and so forth. But tonight... He's going to heal a dead man, right? Bring him back to life. And this is the only gospel this is recorded in. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have this, only John. And you remember the focus of John is what? What's the series title? To magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is going to do here, right? We've been building up this, and he's going to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, again, it's the pinnacle of his gospel, It's the last miracle that's recorded of Jesus, not counting his resurrection. And it's also the biggest, right? Bringing a whole dead body to life, and we'll talk about that. And recall what these miracles and these signs, as John calls them, what do they do? They point to who? They point to Jesus. They are to reveal the truth of who he is. Again, magnifying the glory of Jesus Christ. We see in John that he is the Son of God. And by the end of the night, we will again see another example that he is the son of God. As the title of our sermon is Living Hope, we've just sang about it, right? Jesus is our living hope. 
And this passage explains why he is and why that is important to us. And the big idea I want you to leave with tonight is Jesus is life, death is sleep, thus we have hope. Jesus is life, death is sleep, therefore we have hope. And I would add living hope. So we're going to, there's a lot of verses here in chapter 11, right? So we're going to do this, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, okay? So we're going to do that. We're going to look at different sections. First thing we're going to look at in the first 16 verses, look at the context of what's happening here in this passage. So turn to chapter 11, we're going to look through the first 16 verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and who wiped his feet with her hair. So we don't know that yet. We haven't got there. That's actually in chapter 12. Remember, John is writing this after the fact. So he's just reminding us which Mary, because there's lots of Marys in the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament, right? This is Mary of Bethany. And her brother, Lazarus. And Lazarus was ill. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, so after two days has passed, he tells them, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, notice they call him Rabbi, teacher, not Lord. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Courageous, right? Courageous Thomas. So what do we see in this context here? Well, we see, we're introduced to three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're intimate friends of Jesus. Now, we all have friends, right? But we have really close friends, right? Intimate friends. And these are intimate friends of Jesus. And you can imagine that Bethany is just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. Every time Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to stop by whose house? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? Okay? And he's going to visit them. Close friends. And we see in here that Lazarus dies. We don't know how he died. Don't know what it was from. Uh, We just know he is dead. He's not a little dead. He's not almost dead. He's, well, dead dead, right? Later on in verse 17, we see that he's been in a tomb for four days. That's pretty dead, right? So human decomposition begins around four minutes after a person dies and follows four stages. The first stage is autolysis, where your self-digestion then you have bloating, bugs, and bacteria, second stage. Then active decay, where your body just liquefies, fourth, third stage. And then skeletalization, where you actually literally go from dust to dust, the fourth stage. 
Lazarus had been there four days. 24 to 72 hours after death, the body, those organs decompose. He's past that. Days three through five, body starts to have that bloating, and then bugs and bacteria come in, and you have that putrefaction. Later we'll see he stinks, all right? They say he stinks because of putrefaction. So Lazarus has gone through the first stage, two stages of decomposition. He's dead, okay? He's not asleep. So it's interesting that Jesus says he is asleep. And we're going to come back to what that, why Jesus said that. Because he didn't have to, right? He could have just said he was dead. But he says he's asleep. And there's a reason why he says that. And we're going to understand that throughout the night. And Jesus has a sovereign purpose, right? He could have healed Lazarus by just from there, right? From Bethany. I mean, from where he was to Bethany. He could, just, could have prayed to God and, and he could have been healed from a distance. Or he could have got up immediately and went there and healed Lazarus. But he doesn't. He waits two extra days. But his waiting was for a purpose. And we see this tension, right, between love and his sovereignty. (laughs) The love we see in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, right? He loved them. But then, verse 6, he stays two days because he has a sovereign purpose for Lazarus. Mary Martha didn't know that. Lazarus, of course, didn't know that. But he has a purpose, and we're going to see what that is. There's a side story here about, you know, speaking of death, the disciples tell him, if you go back down, I mean, they want to kill you. Are you not concerned about that? You being killed? You dying? And Jesus reminds them, I am the light of the world. Right? You're not, we're not going to stumble. They haven't caught me yet, Right? They have no authority. Remember, we've talked about his divine authority. He has to allow them to catch him. So he said, I'm not worried. I'm the son of God. I'm the light of the world. Thomas doesn't quite get it, but he is courageous, right? Let's go down there and die with him, right? And then we enter, with that context, we're going to enter three scenes. One with Mary, one with Martha, and one with the resurrection of Lazarus. The first one we see is verse 17 through 27, looking at Martha, the first scene, as we're looking at Martha's hope. Reading verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. So she doesn't even let him get in town, right? She's excited. She goes out and meets him. But Mary, we'll come back to her in a moment. Mary remains seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha had her theology straight, right? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Her, her first statement upon seeing Jesus, Lord, 
if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear the disappointment? Jesus, you're tardy. You didn't get here in time. I thought you loved us. Why didn't you come? You could have healed him. You've healed blind, blind people and lame people. Lazarus was just six. You could, have, you could have healed him. Why were you tardy? But Mary doesn't stop there. After expressing her disappointment, there's that word but. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's not confident that Jesus would raise her brother now. Instead, she believes in Jesus despite her disappointment. Her faith has kicked in of who he is. She has spent enough time with her intimate friend Jesus to know who he is. Martha has hope. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says what? I know that he will on the last day. Talking about the rapture. She understands that. And Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what John wants us to see here. Jesus did not claim to have resurrection and life or understand the secrets of resurrection and life. He said, I am the resurrection and life. In the personhood of Jesus. To know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus in your heart is to have resurrection and life. They are one and the same. Do we grasp that message, church? Do we understand the meaning of that? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, you have resurrection and life. And I, he asked Mary, Martha this question, which we have to ask ourselves, do we believe? She was thinking, of course, about the last days, that yes, he would raise again, uh, uh, Lazarus. But Jesus, of course, was thinking, I'm about to do it right now. And she gives the correct answer. She says, I believe. Now, what does she believe in? This is important, right? She didn't say, I believe what you're about to do or anything like that. She believes in a person. And who is that? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. The very sentence Jesus has been trying to get the Pharisees to say, right? Martha has stated, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've come into the world. She realizes what? That he is God that come down as man to save us. Not that he's man trying to be a God and creating blasphemy. We talked about that last week, right? See, Mary has hope. And her hope is rested on who Jesus is, the Son of God. Now, unfortunately, we see something very different with Mary. We're going to see hopelessness with Mary. Verses 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Don't you like that Jesus calls us by name? Verse 29, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same statement, right? That Martha said. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary has come and she falls at Jesus' feet, perfect posture, right? Fall at his feet. But she asks the same question Martha did. Why are you tardy, Jesus? Why didn't you get here in time? But unlike Martha, she stops there. She just starts wailing and weeping. And all the Jews around her are wailing and weeping as well. They do not have the knowledge of who Jesus is yet. For Mary and the Jews, Jesus did not have the knowledge or compassion and power to act. They thought he was a rabbi or teacher. And we see Jesus, it says he's deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. This phrase in the Greek, deeply moved, means to snort like a horse. So Judy, our consummate horse expert, will tell you, a horse that snorts is usually one who's agitated or irritated. He's angry, he's upset, he's annoyed. Jesus here is not moved with compassion. He, he's upset. He, he, he's irritated. He has righteous indignation. He has some outrage. Why? Why is he upset? Possible at first blush when you first read this, right? Um, Jesus is angry or troubled because of the destruction of death, right? Death has taken his friend. Of course, he's about to conquer death in a few chapters. That's at first blush, but if you dive deeper and understand what he's doing here, the real reason, his, his sad, he realizes the sadness of Mary and the Jews has led to utter despair. There was, not, there was belief, perhaps, but there was no hope. There's hopelessness. They're wailing and weeping. We will face sadness in life, right? But God does not want us to be hopeless. Mary, at this point, was hopeless. And so Jesus weeps in verse 35. Was he, did he have grief over Lazarus? Of course, he's compassionate. But it's deeper than that. He was weeping over the people's despair. The other location we see Jesus weeping is in Luke 19, when he's looking over Jerusalem, and he weeps because Jerusalem has not recognized who he is. They have missed the opportunity to embrace the Son of God. So he's moved. And we move to the miracle of Jesus in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Same word. He's irritated. He's agitated. A little outrage. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
See, Jesus has already prayed silently. I knew that you always hear me, but I thank, I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He was dead four days. There will be an odor. I like the King James Version. By this time, he stinketh. Right? He's putrefying. He's dead. But what does Jesus do? He prays to the Father. And two things happen to Lazarus. First, instantaneously, the two stages of human decomposition have been reversed. He's removed the bloating and the bugs and the bacteria. He's restored the digested internal organs. He's actually restarted the physical body, pumping the heart, all the electroactivity of the brain. The creator has recreated Lazarus' body in an instant. Second thing, Lazarus' soul was placed back in his body. The man who died came out. What an understatement in that verse, right? (laughs) John, who's a wonderful writer and explaining things, just says the dead man came out, right? I would have probably written a few more paragraphs about that if it was me. But I'm not the Holy Spirit guiding John, right? Lazarus, probably the originator of dead man walking, right? There's a dead man walking out of the tomb. Jesus, praying to God the Father, has entirely healed a dead body, reanimated it, placed its soul back in. And Lazarus is there bound and wants to get out, right? So he can breathe and move his hands and legs. He probably has a story to tell, right? (laughs) Yeah? Can you imagine having dinner with Lazarus that night? (laughs) Be fascinating, right? Of course, I like to have dinner with Jesus too, but Lazarus would have been fascinating, right? (laughs) A dead man who's come back to life. And what happens? Rather than joy and excitement, we see a murderous plan, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's a good thing. How could you not believe? Right? You knew the man was dead, and now he's alive. He's talking. In chapter 12, he's having dinner with Mary, Martha, and Jesus. He's eating. He's talking. He's carrying on life. They believed. But, 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The them there I could translate as tattlers and knuckleheads, right? They went and tattled to the Pharisees, this Jesus, he did it again, and you won't believe what he did. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 47, gathered the council and said, so they gathered the Sanhedrin, all the 70 Jewish leaders, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. It's an understatement. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans, what? To put him to death. And we're going to see that in the next eight chapters, that plan unraveling. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. He's going back out into the desert to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests, the Pharisees, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. They wanted to murder and arrest Jesus. These religious leaders were beside themselves. And do you see why? Verse 48. We let keep Jesus keep going. The, the Romans are out to come and take things away. And we're going to lose our place in our nation. They could care less that Jesus had healed people, had brought a dead man to life, could care less that he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, or that he was the son of God. All they were cared about was their pride and their selfishness. We are going to lose something. We are going to lose our prestige. They were thinking about self. The enemy of belief, right? Self. And that's what we have to submit to Jesus, accept him as Lord and Savior. Humble and give him ourself. Incidentally, we'll see in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, they want to kill Lazarus too, right? If they can't kill Jesus, next best thing is to get rid of the evidence. If we get rid of Lazarus, then there's no dead body walking around anymore, right? So we'll see that next week. Remember John chapter 10, verses 37 through 38 that we talked about last week? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's after these words that Jesus raises Lazarus. If you had any doubts about the divine origin of Jesus, raising Lazarus would have taken that away, right? But still, you see people doubt that. Do not believe it. Struggle to accept the claims. See, the raising of Lazarus <laughs> proves that Jesus is, is the eternal Son of God. Period. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord of the Lord. He's the King of Kings. He's the resurrection and life. Unequivocally. Do you believe it? The question he asked Martha, do you believe? Church, do you believe? This is when you talk back. Church, do you believe? Okay. So what do we do with this passage? I want you to see it anew, right? Be in awe of what he did. What does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection of life? And the first thing, we need to have a dialogue with death. Now, as I thought about it, I've... I think there's four approaches people have to death, as I've talked with people 
in my 55 years. The first way people confront death is avoidance. I have family members who just avoid talking about it, right? Don't think about it, avoid, avoid it altogether, refuse to, to even confront mortality. Just, just ignore it. And that's not helpful, nor is that the Christian position, right? We don't long for it, of course, but we just, we, we don't not talk about it, right? It's going to happen. Second is just p- profound despair. People can view death as just being terminal, the end, have no sense of actually what lies beyond. This is not really a Christian position either, right? Death is a departure point, not a final destination. Death is a departure point, not a final destination. One of the saddest things to attend is the funeral of a lost person. Profound despair. Third, it's probably going to sound a little strange to maybe new believers or visitors or even mature believers, is apathy. We can be apathetic towards death. What do I mean by that? You know, we grow up hearing about eternal life. And Jesus died for our sins, that we can be saved and go to heaven. We use phrases like everlasting life and quote Paul, to be absent from the body, is he present with the Lord? We hear all those things growing up over and over and over again to the point that they lose their meaning. We have to be careful that familiar church jargon does not eclipse what Jesus did for us. Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. He was resurrected from the dead so that we can have eternal life with him. I did not deserve it. Nothing I can do to earn it. He did it for his grace and his mercy. We need to be in awe once again of what Jesus did. And and it's hard sometimes. I, I know we're in a special effects culture. We sometimes get more in awe of something you would see in a movie screen than about what Jesus has done for us. May it not be so. If I can borrow Chad's phrase, let's do the hokey pokey and turn around, right? And be in awe of who Jesus is. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The fourth way they confront death, as I think, is just to think about it and prepare. That's the Christian view, right? Death is not a lie, it's a reality. Everybody in this room has lived long enough. To know that death is a reality, right? It's a lie of Satan to say it's not. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Die is not, death's not real. Of course, God had said that in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Yes, God said we would die if we disobeyed him. In Genesis chapter 3, 19, our curse, For you are dust, and the dust you shall return. 
See, death is a transition from one state of existence to another. It's a departure point, not a final destination. Death is sleep. When you die, you wake up. Because Jesus is life. He has conquered death. See, this earthly body that I'm in is a repository for my soul. Okay, it's 55 years old now. It has an expiration date. At some point, this body is going to expire. My soul does not expire. It moves from one state to existence to another. When I die, my soul is going to leave my body and go to heaven. And then on rapture, he's going to take my body and put it back in my glorified body. Take my soul, I mean, and put it back in my glorified body. And then later, he's going to move me to the new heaven and new earth. My soul will always be in existence. Your soul is either going to be with God, or unfortunately, if you're not a believer, separated eternally from him. And feeling the torment of the lake of fire, a real place that was originally intended for Satan and his demons, but God puts unbelievers there as well for eternity. We have to have a deep and abiding love for Jesus because none of us here can conquer death. No amount of Botox, plastic surgery, anything else, you cannot (laughs) bypass death. It's going to happen. And you cannot conquer it. Only Jesus conquered death because he rose from the dead. And after we die, he will raise us as believers as well. See, there's no soul sleep. Our, our soul is just not going to go to sleep and wait. Right? In an instance, twinkle of an eye, we are in heaven when we die, if you're a believer. If you're not, you're going to be in Sheol or Hades, waiting the final judgment. Hades is not the same thing as like a fire or hell. Separate places. Realize what he did in providing life after death. Paul sums up in Philippians 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you gain? Eternal life in the eternal presence of God. No more tears, no more sickness. Walking with Jesus every day, talking with God, just like Adam and Eve used to do before the curse. Only as we confront the reality of death will we appreciate the hope of resurrection. I would say there's nothing like death to help us think about resurrection, right? And we can have confidence. It's not boasting, it's confidence. I can, I can expound 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? I'm not boasting. I have confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's the res- resurrection and the life. Oh, death, where's your sting? It is no longer here, right? Jesus has conquered it. That moves us to the second application, tombstone dash. Now, I'm not talking about a midnight run through the cemetery on a moonless night. Not that kind of dash. That would just be creepy, right? Okay, we're not dashing through the cemetery. I'm talking about the punctuation dash, all right? That short line between birth date and death date on a tombstone. Charles Patrick, April 24, 1968, dash, April 24, 2068. Okay, 
why Susanna wants us to be centurions, so that's why I chose 100 years. Okay. Okay. That short dash, right, is what I want to talk about. That's your life, right? That short dash. Most of us are not going to get a do-over like Lazarus did, right? <laughs> Lazarus got a do-over, right? He got to come back and again, right? We don't. That dash represents the extent of our life. All your highs, all your lows, your accomplishments, your failures, all your relationships, all your amassed material items, all the books you've read, all the entertainment you've watched, all that you've eaten, kids, number of times you've jumped in the pool, number of chickens you've raised, number of times you kissed your wife, it's all in that dash, right? So my question to us, including me, is what are we doing with that dash? Compared to eternity, that dash seems inconsequential, right? It's inconsequential length of time compared to eternity. If I had a rope here, this little piece of rope would be inconsequential to an infinite length of rope, right? Seems inconsequential. However, it is in this dash that you choose to believe in Jesus Christ, which alters the rest of your eternity. It's critical. It determines, this dash determines whether you spend your eternity in the presence of God or separated from him. Also in this dash is, that you, is where you carry out the great commission, that you share the gospels to others so that they can spend eternity in the presence of God as well. All that happens in that little dash, right, that we call life. That the older I get, the smaller it seems, all right? I remember one Christmas, we were in Plainview, and one of my uh, nephews was opening his present. He was all excited, and I think he was around eight or so, and he opened up his gift, and he said, oh, I've been waiting for this my entire life. It was only eight years, right? So again, I ask you, what are we doing with our dash? Unbelievers in the room, if your dash is going to end with you eternally separated from a holy, loving, merciful God... I would submit you need to give your life to him. Place your trust in him today. As Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? Answer that question yes tonight. Believers, that dash, are you abiding in Christ? Are you walking in the spirit? Are your time, treasures, and talents used for God or for self? We only have a dash to affect this world for the kingdom of God? Are you wasting your God-given dash? Because he gave us the dash, right? It's not ours. He breathed life into us. If you are, just reorient your life. The Bible is your compass, right? We see Mary doing this. Here in chapter 11, she's hopeless. We'll see next week in chapter 12 that she anoints Jesus, right? She's reoriented her life. She realizes who he is and what he's about to do. She's done a 180. She's done a hokey pokey, Chad. That's what she's done, right? Do that tonight. Speaking to Mary, third application, hope for the hopeless. If you have extra time this week, or maybe in perhaps in community groups, read Psalm 88. Ezraite, uh, an Ezraite named Heman, 
I don't want to say He-Man, but it's, it's written He-Man, but that's a different cartoon character. But He-Man, let's just say, um, writes Psalm 88. Verse 1 is the only bright spot in the psalm. It says, God of my salvation. The rest of the 17 verses is a lengthy, hopeless lament. It's a sad psalm to read. If you want encouragement, don't read that psalm. Okay? It's a sad psalm. He's hopeless. He forgot verse 1, God of my salvation. The rest of the psalm, he just deviates from that. And he's just lost as a goose in a snowstorm. He's hopeless. See, our society is now full of hopelessness. What do you say? In the interest of time, let me choose one demographic, although it's going to speak to all demographics, but let me just choose uh, those who are age 14 to 25. So if you're age 14 to 25, raise your hand. Okay, you're looking at Gen Z, right? Gen Z. 51% of Gen Zers say they feel depressed and hopeless. And their worldview is driven by a constant state of fear, all studies show. Fear of what? Fear of economic collapse and not having enough money to live. Fear of environmental collapse, the world's going to end. Fear of not being happy, fear of not being married. Fear of not having kids in the midst of overpopulation. Fear of being locked in a job they don't like. Fear of failure, fear of the future. See themselves as a doomed generation. They are the loneliest and most depressed generation that has ever been recorded. They are disengaged, therefore, and in despair as a collective group. Not saying our group is. Suicide is a leading, second leading cause of death in Gen Z because they're in despair. So much, not all, hear me clear, not all, but so much of mental health issues in society is a spiritual health issue. Hopelessness. Proverbs 17.22, a crushed spirit dries up the bones. There's a link between your spirit and your body, between the spirit and your mind. We are not to live in hopelessness. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're prone to hopelessness or feel that way right now or prone to despair, write down these two verses. Put them on your wall. Put them on the home screen of your phone so you see them, whatever you need to do. Isaiah 41.10, 2 Timothy 1.7. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We are fueled by hope, not hopelessness. We are to be Martha, not Mary in this chapter. So what is hope? It's the currency of the kingdom of God. You remember Superman, right? Lois Lane is asking him, what's that S on his chest? And he says, it's not an S. It's the symbol for hope in his world, right? What is what I mean by hope? Hope does not equal wish, as we use it in the common vernacular. My kids are saying right now, I hope daddy takes us to dinner tonight. It really means I wish daddy takes us to dinner tonight, right? That's not what it means, 
Or maybe the more kids say, I hope my dad builds a slide from the second story to the pool. Okay, that's a wish, not a hope, right? I'm with you, by the way, guys, okay? (laughs) That's not what hope means. Hope in the Bible, in the Greek, means eager, confident expectation. Eager, confident expectation. It's not only a living hope, it's lively, it's alive. It's a hope that lives on. It's not like the dead, empty hope of the world, right? It's a living hope. It's energized, alive. It's supposed to be active in the souls of a believer. And why? Because our living hope originates who? From Jesus. As Martha said, you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is our living hope. And see, our living hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose from the dead. It's anchored in the present. Jesus is alive and it's anchored in the future. Jesus promises eternal resurrected life. I want to read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 one more time. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection in Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection in life, he said. And what is that hope? It's an inheritance that is imperishable, cannot be taken away, does not decay. Undefiled, man can't do anything to it, neither can Satan. And unfading, it's not going to disappear. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We talked about our salvation, our eternal life is secure, right? Because it's the hands of who we said last week? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is our living hope. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? Church, do you believe? Church, we enjoy a living hope. Jesus is life. Death is sleep. Thus, we have hope. As the worship team comes up, recall what John has been doing in the first, chap- first 11 chapters. He's been magnifying the glory of Christ. It's the pinnacle expression shown here in raising Lazarus. And Jesus stating, I am the resurrection and the life. Just think about that statement. He's the resurrection and the life. Church, is your hope in Jesus? Do you fall in awe in response to his glory and what he has done? He's washed away our sins. He's made us holy. He's made us white as snow. He's given us eternal life. We have hope. We normally sing two songs at the end of the message. During the second song, you can do business with God. You can go pray here at the altar in your seat, prayer room. Maybe you want to become a member of the church, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want you to do those things in the second song. On this first song, I want you to respond to the good news that we've heard tonight. Our response should be the worship his glorious name. I'm asking you to stand. No one moving around except Samantha, our praise dancer. Right? She can move. Go ahead, stand. No one moving around. I want you to turn your awe and your praise into singing as a body of believers. This is a slow and reverent song. 
but praise that builds up to hallelujah was meaning praise the Lord. I want you to sing it as your worship, as your prayer. I want you to sing it with all your heart. I want you to be overwhelmed with the spirit about who Christ is. He's your living hope. 